Hi, thank you for tuning in to another episode of State of the Arts, a podcast where artists can connect, debate, chat, and perform during these very difficult times. I'm Lee, your hostess of Ceremonies, and this is episode 23. My guest this week is the artistic director of the Covenant Ballet Theater of Brooklyn. She's an accomplished ballet director, producer, and choreographer. Marla Hirokawa is my guest this week. She is the creator of many original story ballets since 1989. Today, I'm focusing in particular on the Nisei Project, which was created in honor of Marla's late father and his fellow Japanese-American soldiers in World War II in the segregated army units. Marla's father's unit was the most highly decorated unit and suffered the greatest number of casualties. Many of the soldiers were released from U.S. government internment camps when they were drafted. Marla tells this story in the form of a magnificent, heart-wrenching, and glorious ballet. Debut was in 2001, and it was on tour in 2004 in Hawaii. In 2014, it was in the Fringe Festival. Welcome to my show, Marla. It's such an honor and a thrill to have you on my podcast. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. So the Nisei Project made its debut in 2001. At what point did the idea of this performance take form in your mind? The year before. Um, I had wanted to do a ballet for my kids and um, produce this story, new story. And I actually did, wasn't going to focus on the Japanese Americans. It, in my head, it was just one part of many stories. And so I was going to have three different heroes in the story that would be tracked um, during World War II. And a few people, when I would start to play around with the idea of my synopsis, um, people would stop and go, wait, 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 wait a minute. You mean Japanese? Uh, fighting in World War II for on the American side? What are you talking about? And I realized, especially being on the East Coast, how little people knew about that component of World War II history. And so I killed the idea of making it a broader slash, a broader look at the story. And I focused on my story, um, the Japanese Americans. And um, although I have to say, our family um, and our roots is particularly because we were from Hawaii, we did not have the internment per se. Very few um, more of the well-known and um, prominent leaders of the Japanese communities were arrested or put away in internment camps on, in Hawaii. So we did not have, and both my parents really didn't have any of that bitterness um, of that part of the story. But when I, as so as I started to build it, I said, I have to put that part in. I have to have that component. And so the, the story is a little bit of my dad, but also a broader stroke of what, what happened in general. And so, and then we created it in 2001. And this is the funny story. My mother and my sister, Lori Hamana, which there are three sisters. So she's the one right above me. She decided to come to New York to see this production with my mother. And we were in rehearsal. And when, after the show was, after the rehearsal was over, she grabbed my arm and looked at me and said, what in the world is this doing here? We need to bring this home. And I was like, yeah, 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 nice. 
huge, huge thought, but I don't know that that's going to happen. And she began the incredible journey of two years of being the ground on the ground in Hawaii, putting the project together. And so to, it was actually 2003, we toured four islands in Hawaii and performed over two weeks, um, giving the story and meeting so many veterans, not just Japanese American veterans, but veterans of all, all wars, different wars and nationalities. And um, it was quite a sweet, amazing piece. And, and most of my family on the different islands were involved. Poor guys, they got roped into it. <laughs> they had no idea what they were getting into. <laughs> and uh, she, my my sister Laurie, was an incredible organizer, and um, so we did that. And then it went to bed. We we performed it a few times out here for schools and just a public performances, and it kind of went to bed. And in two thousand twelve, we actually performed another one of my historic ballets for the Fringe Festival. And I thought, you know what, maybe that went really well. Maybe I will nom see if I can do this and, and um, send this in as a, as a possibility. And we were selected in 2014. It's no yeah. wonder, it is a masterpiece. And uh, <laughs> I'm so happy that my uncle was a part of it and that's how I discovered yeah. it. It's yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy too. He loved doing that role, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful um, ability to be able to restage that. We did a lot of changes. We made a lot of changes in in music predominantly, which kind of opened, really bumped the game up a little bit. And uh, and I think the venue that we were in made it so intimate and really helped bring the story that much closer to the people. And it wasn't so, it's just, it's amazing. The venue, music, um, some of those changes that we made just made it much stronger. It was amazing. It was just, it was perfection. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, did you find the Nisei project to be unique from the other uh, works that you've done? Yes, and that it's the most personal. Uh, many, many years ago, um, literally personal. Um, I, I did a piece when my father passed away um, back in 2003. No, I'm sorry, 1993. Wow, that's really dating me. And um, that, that long ago, and I called it A Time to Mourn and A Time to Dance. And so it was kind of my outworking, but it was a pretty, it was about a grandfather, the seasons of life was much more generic, it was kind of set in medieval times and the setting. And, and so it was my rendering of grief, but it wasn't so personal and really literally personal as this one, um, trying to honor that story and putting it on. I do have one other historic ballet, and, um, but this one, yeah, isn't, that one wasn't as personal, but I was passionate about both stories, yeah. And with such intense motion, emotions and the fact that it is so personal, did the rehearsals ever get difficult at times emotionally? Yes and no. There were points when, because some of the choreography is pretty simple, in trying to portray cer certain things, sometimes saying too much overdo overdoes it 
but when you go, go get back and be very simple in telling the story, then it actually allows the emotion to just come through um, much more organically. And so there were times when I was choreographing it and actually showing the dancers what to do that it did get pretty emotional. It did feel, you felt, I felt the feelings that I wanted to come out and that made me realize, okay, this is good. <laughs> when I watched it, I would get goosebumps. I'm on the right track. Oh, oh, that, oh, I'm starting to tear up. You hit it. Yes. <laughs> so that was all part of it. Yeah. Well, as an audience member, I admit I was crying like a baby. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm so glad that means we did our job. I did our job. Yeah. job. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, would you say it was a life-changing experience? Yes. Yes, in a couple ways. Um, because I'm a sansei, I'm a third generation being the daughter of these these Mise veterans, when they came back, it was incredibly important for them, at least in my family, my father, my mother, to embrace our American heritage. And so I guess I was, my two sisters went to Japanese school, but I was the last um, that started it, but I stopped for, I started to get more dyslexic in my English words. And so my pediatrician just said, well, you know what, this is here, just just take her out, you can put her back later. So I didn't have a lot of that immersion into the real heavy cultural. We had a lot of the traditions and doing different festivals and, and learning some of the dances, wearing the kimono, eating the, the food, but I wasn't immersed in that. I got into ballet and it that was it. The Western history of the ballet and the ballet experience, um, classical ballet was what I was all about. And so when I came to this point, I had to investigate. I had to go research how to do a kimono. Wow. I had to go and find out wow. the history behind that. I had to go and research music, you know, look into some of the history. Particularly what was fascinating to me was the, the picture brides of, that came to Hawaii that did in some ways make up some of, they were a little bit older in the generation of the history of the Nisei, but they were kind of the precursor and they were part of that whole thing of how they got to Hawaii. So it was just doing a lot of reading and research and um, that I never felt so Japanese <laughs> in understand, you know what I mean? It was just, you, it was very um, enlightening and um, deepening of who, of my identity. And it was a sweet, sweet piece. And then in, I'd say in 2003, when we actually took it to Hawaii, I felt the merging of my two worlds because I had already been living in, in New York for a number of years. Uh, 2003, I had moved there in 1983, 84. So that's a number of years already. So I was pretty much a New Yorker and really becoming more of a mainlander than a Hawaii girl. And so being able to bring back, merge that component, as well as those having those roots and those, some of that, the cult, you know, the history of my own history coming together and seeing family and seeing my family members who are veterans on stage and honoring some of my, my mother's brothers who were Nisei veterans on that stage. And it was very, very emotional. 
and it was my mom was still alive at the time too so it was my mom and my three sisters it was pretty sweet so it was very impactful in my life completely it's something that we'll never ever forget yeah to be able to reach your heritage like that and for it to be immersed into it and yes it's yes a little yeah a little late but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) it's fine (laughs) and i think my husband can relate to that he'd like to get more in touch with his italian heritage sweet yes his family's been several generations here from italy so (laughs) there you go and you know they had an interesting um it wasn't so obvious, but they had an interesting story as well in the whole World War II, potentially fighting relatives on the other side. And so it's just, it, it's, yeah, it's, there's so many stories and so much, there's so much to all of that. Yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. It was a very large war. There were a lot of different mm-hmm. cultures involved. It was, I guess, you know, it was World War II, so. Yes. Yes. Incredible. <laughs> my, my, yeah. my grandparents too. I could go on about that. Yes. <laughs> have the whole it's story in, in Hong Kong <laughs> with what happened with them. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, leaving the set so simple. It was like a blank canvas. I, I felt the performers were the paint. And I loved it because there were no distractions, no over-the-top histrionics, and no reason to compensate for anything. So why was it important to leave the set simple? <laughs> Straightforwardly, we didn't have the money. Oh, well, <laughs> Straightforwardly. Um, it worked in your favor. <laughs> it did. It was more, I mean, because I, you know, honestly, I... I never set out to be a choreographer and I think I can't, and I tried to do um, some investigating of that part of me for a while by going to workshops and different things and trying to build my choreographic um, portfolio, but it came down to what was best for me personally was to tell stories and tell stories with bodies and with ideas. And so we didn't have a lot large budget. So I had to kind of think of what were the things that I needed that would impactfully tell the story. And then the rest is through the dancing and the music. And the funny, can I tell you a little anecdote? When we were pitching this to, to take it to Hawaii, my sister Lori and I sat down with a, um, a very big producer on the island at that time. And he had built a couple of different things and was connected to a big park there, um, it escapes me the name at this point, but Roy sat us down and he said, we need to, he sat down with my sister actually before he met me and said, don't you think we need to talk to Marla about getting some sets and some, let's like making it a little bit bigger in the production. <laughs> and it was a really funny thing because he was so used to a large production um, component the staging, the stagecraft. I laugh at it now, but it was like, no, I I don't intend to change anything. This is how I want to tell the story. Um, the simplicity of it sometimes gets it more impactful and makes it more impactful. And um, so, yeah, no, it was just very funny and it's very cute. I thought it was very um, interesting that you picked up on that. 
the only thing that I added that we did not have in Hawaii was the slide projection of the internment camps during the time that the parent, the mother was being taken away and leaving the son. And, and Eve, and the one, there was also one thing that I actually changed and added is when the Nisei gets really angry when his guns are taken away and his mother comes back to him to remind him of honor and all of those things. And that with the, the side slides in the back of her at, at one of the internment camps, I thought was necessary to be, to make that component of the story much stronger. And so I think it really helped in, in deepening what I was trying to say. So that was really great. And that was something that definitely changed staging wise and choreographically. I, I remember that vividly too. Yeah. It's a very powerful part of the performance. It was all powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, the symbolism in choosing Japanese music for the heavier, more poignant part of the performance uh, was what was the symbolism in your music choices? Um, it was the dichotomy of the first generation and the new world they were in. You know, you I needed something to portray their their struggles and how they this is their traditions this is but they're in a place that has is completely different and i remember my mom um, saying how the first time she ever saw and the last probably the first and last time she ever saw her father cry was when he was he heard about hiroshima's bombing and he it was you know, they, it was so hard for them. They loved their country and their where they came from. And but they w made the choice to come to the, Hawaii, which was a territory at that time, and make this change and find a new life here. And so the struggle at the war was really hard. You know, they it was bittersweet. It was so bittersweet. So I needed something. So it was making her much more traditional, wearing the kimono, having the teapot, but also having her at the point where she finds out about that, the bombing, that she dances to something that is much more traditional. Because we set it up at the beginning, she's trying to carry on the traditions to her children with the teapot, the music, but then it comes back, oh my goodness, is something going to happen with my heritage because this is these are my people and so i needed to bring that to a strong place so yes the symbolism was was real now what was interesting is i really don't know a lot of japanese music that's not again you know as a kid i was brought up to be very american and i because i i and immersed myself into the ballet world i didn't have a lot of um resources of things to pull off and I had one song that we used to know very well growing up, Sakura. And that had some little poignant things about the actual lyrics. But when I then when I started to research, I found this particular song for that particular, what I needed to say. So yeah. Incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. 
uh, would you consider reviving it again in the future? I think it's very significant now with all the hate crimes against Asians. I think it's important for artists to um, stand up against it with their artwork. And I think <laughs> the Nisei project, it's how history repeats itself and we can learn from the past would mm -hmm. I think would be beneficial in the arts world to have it revived one day. Have you considered that? I, I totally want to. Um, and the, the whole thing will be, you know, obviously I hate to say it, but so much of the arts comes down, comes down to budgets and timing and all of that. But I do know that I do want to do something before the end of the year, because, um, this year is the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Harbor. So it's a big year. Yeah. And um, so it, it may even just end up being for the first time, just um, airing um, video of our fringe performance, which we do have in full and being able to air that, if not being able to actually mount the performance live. But I forgot to mention one more thing. Um, we, I had approached, in the original version, um, a musician of mine regarding the music. And we, I kind of just, he was new to composing and he was a percussionist. And so we just kind of sat down and pieced the piece together and the music gave him, giving him all what I was interested, was thinking of doing and needing for the piece. But when we were looking at the fringe, I knew that I needed to up the game to have complete live live musicians. When we took it on tour, we only had, we had a recorded score and a partial live. We had Keith on um, percussion, my composer, and then we had a live shakuhachi player, which was a the Japanese flute and a live koto player. So we had those three things live, but the rest had to be um, recorded. So I approached um, a dear friend of mine, um, Craig Brand, who's an incredible jazz musician. And we, I decided to just do a huge rethink. We kept the Kojo Notsuki. We kept a lot of Keith's percussion and his battle work. Um, we kept all the speeches, but some of the musical threads we changed. And um, I brought in a song that I didn't have in the original by Harold Payne called um, the, he called, he was a singer songwriter and he from, from California and he wrote it called Quiet Heroes. And it, that's what was sung at the beginning and at the end. It was so beautiful. And I just, I love that song. <laughs> and I just said it, it, it fit how I could set up the ballet. And then I came across Jake Shimabukuro, who's a really incredible composer, um, ukulele virtuoso originally from Hawaii. And he wrote a song for the Nisei. And I was able to, in God's amazing providence, get to him and get him to say okay for the rights to use his song. And so a lot of the ukulele and some of the, the theme that came off of the song from Harold that went into the components at the beginning and the end were, um, were Jake's song. And so it, it wove and it made it a much tighter and stronger score. And um, it bumped everything up, I think, in the production value of when we presented it in Manhattan.
It did. It just fit together like a puzzle. Yes. This is all aligned perfectly. Yes, I agree. And so I was incredibly grateful. So, yeah. So, but I do hope to bring it back. Oh, wonderful. Um, some form. <laughs> I don't know how, but in some form. I'll be there no matter what form okay. it's in. Okay. <laughs> we have a huge fan here. Yay. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> Thank you, Marla. <laughs> um, so how important is it to educate the children about all of this by oh. letting them view the performance? Incredibly important. Um, I think when we went to Hawaii, I mean, we had, we, it was hard because we went in the summer in July and uh, schools were not open really at that point, but we hit some, some uh, summer schools and we hit some other, uh, other school programs that had children attached to it so that we could try to bring some educational, because that was our whole thing. That was my whole thing. And part of Covenant Ballet Theater is not just an academy to teaching school kids to dance. It's also that we do arts and education programs in the public school. And so it was really important for me to get that component in and get them to see the show. And so um, it is an important piece. And so when we, after the Nisei project in Hawaii was done, we, a lot of the annual performances of Nisei a couple times after that, like we did it at least two years in a row after that, were mainly for public schools and trying to get that other, this other story out to, to these kids to educate them about what happened. That's and so, it's so important, it's, it's vital. Yes, it really is. Um, and yeah, it's very important for people to see. Yes. And uh, yeah. Definitely. And uh, how can, how do you feel that Asian artists can stand up against the racism these days, not just Japanese American artists, but all Asian American artists through their art forms? Well, you know, I've been thinking about that and thinking how, and I think it, I, I don't have any big profound thing to say, except that personally, it's being able to honor the heritage that we have. And the way to do it is like our parents before us and like many generations before us, it's living their life responsibly, honorably, with integrity, getting up every day and doing what you have to do despite the odds, despite the struggles, despite the outlooks. But you have to get up and you have to feed your family you have to take care of your business. You have to, you want to take care of, you want to serve people in under God, serve God under God in the community, your family, your friends. And it's just doing what you can. And as an artist, we're just one of many different fields. And so we, we should just take our art and be, be productive with it and find and being open. It's not just to have a piece of art that, oh, I did this. You know, it's like, how can I take my art and serve my community? That's wonderful. And, you know, you know, and that I think when you look back the at the time that that World War II, what happened back then was really, really incredibly tough 
because it they what they fought for then was became a gift for us and in the generations that came from my generation to your generation um it's their gift we have been able to do these things we have been able to do be a host for a podcast be an artist to be a singer to be a dancer they didn't have that privilege they had to work hard to gain money to then and then fight in these to to struggle against these odds in order to give their future generations they paved the way for us amen and it's like they had such a a mind they had a bigger a bigger idea of their life and i think what we can learn from that is to take away the same thing just have that same outlook whether you're an artist whether you're a restaurant owner whether whatever you do even no matter if you're asian it does it really crosses all sectors of race or or um cultures it's like you're we should always just be ready to do what we can where we are meeting needs and and taking our gifts and being grateful for it mm-hmm. and so not hiding it in a closet yes but taking it out and you doing something with it and being productive and then and then you never know what's going to happen and what can happen and what that can spark and th- what happens with your neighbors and your neighbors perspectives and how that changes and what how that changes somebody over here on the other side so you just do what you can and you, you let the chips fall where they may so to speak mm-hmm. in hoping to do better for the next generation you know thank so you I think the larger picture i don't have anything really to say oh, that's very wise i think it's great advice for everyone <laughs> not just artists or asian americans for everyone <laughs> right because we're, we're always going to face hard times it's just yeah. one of those things Absolutely. and so what do you do in the face of it personal or in a larger scale and and in world war ii it was a national scale so mm-hmm. you know what is it um and system and really systematically where they were carted away and put into internment camps we don't see that now now it's just more um random random yeah. mm-hmm. so what do we yeah how do we do that so it's yeah i i think meeting it personally responsibly on a day-to-day and um particularly from the nisei perspective they have something called gaman which is um go for broke it's that whole idea of perseverance you just do it and you just keep going and one of the things my i'll never forget my father used to used to say to i guess instilled in me don't be a quitter don't be a quitter persevere you know fight work through it but don't quit and i think that's the head the head and the cultural legacy i have from those nisei men that i want to continue to try to i don't have children but i have children in my studio and those 35 four years going on 35 years of training them i'm hoping to instill something of that character trait you know don't give up that's don't great. give up that's yeah so so. <laughs> it pulls you through life absolutely yeah and i think of gandhi and martin luther king that turn the other cheek and justice will be served philosophy and that reminds me of the um nisei generation that 
went to war for the US. Uh, your father loved his country and his heritage. And that just takes so much strength and character. Yes. And I can, I guess, Lee, that, that just brings back to, if, if I had anything to say, it's just, um, you got to dig deep and have strength of character to face obstacles and trials in, in every generation and every life and in everybody's lives. So, yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Um, th thank welcome. you. And I want to thank everybody for listening. It was, uh, this was such an incredible, epic episode. I'm so grateful <laughs> for Marla. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. And um, take care, everyone, and have a wonderful day. And stay positive, stay safe. <laughs>